0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And today we've got a good one for you. The life of Phineas Taylor Barnum. He was to show business what Andrew Jackson had been to politics. And like Andrew Jackson, he became one of the representative Americans of his time an expansive entrepreneur in the great age of entrepreneurs. In a big and memorable way, he changed how all Americans lived. Our movies, TV, and our entire entertainment-saturated culture is what it is today because of what this one man started. He seems almost a fable now, but then he did in his own day too.
1: Tonight, we welcome America's fabulous showman... Phineas Taylor
2: Barnum! When you think of P.T. Barnum, you think of the circus. But he didn't invent the circus. He reinvented it and turned it into the greatest show on earth. Whatever Barnum did, he did big. Most of all, he was the ultimate American salesman. In fact, Barnum is known today as the Shakespeare of advertising. At a time when the railroads and the Industrial Revolution were sweeping America into the 20th century, Barnum sold dreams. Phineas Taylor Barnum was born in Bethel, Connecticut on the 5th of July, 1810. He was the eldest of five. Influenced by the Protestant work ethic, the young man would attend school just long enough to master basic reading, writing, and arithmetic skills. After that, it was off to work in his father's dry goods store when he was just eight. Ironically, the Barnum family's orthodox Protestantism is what sparked P.T.'s flair for showmanship. The church would often run lotteries and play good-natured practical jokes on each other. And one of Bethel's most savvy practical jokers was Barnum's grandfather, Phineas Taylor, for whom he was named. The grandfather was among the town's wealthiest citizens, and he used this fact to make P.T. the victim of one of his longest-running gags. At the boy's christening, he deeded him a piece of land called Ivy Island.
3: I give you Ivy Island as a gift, Phineas. It'll
1: make you the richest boy in town.
2: For years, P.T. heard stories about what a rich, lucky young man he was.
1: How much more? Oh, just right up ahead, Phineas, right up ahead.
2: Finally, at the age of 10, he set out with his grandfather to see Ivy Island for himself.
4: Feast your eyes, lad! Ivy Island! Ivy Island kind (laughs) of uh, makes people think of some beautifully manicured estate or something, uh, when in reality, Ivy Island was named for Poison Ivy.
2: Ivy Island taught him a valuable lesson, that people love to be humbugged. Then, In 1826, P.T.'s father fell ill with a fever and died. The 15-year-old boy became the family's sole source of support. Things looked even darker when everything the family owned, including the shoes young Barnum wore to the funeral, were sold to pay their father's debts. His father's store changed hands, and he went to work for the new owner, his uncle, Deacon Cox. One day while his uncle was out, A high-pressure salesman talked Barnum into buying 550 useless glass bottles. When his uncle returned,
1: 550 green bottles! Sir, if I can sell these bottles in a month,
4: may I keep my job?
2: Barnum came up with a plan. Mr. Cox! He would hold a lottery. He posted a sign that read, Magnificent lottery, over 550 prizes, only 1,000 tickets. First prize was worth $25 of goods from the grocery store, and second prize won $10 worth of goods. It seemed as if the whole town were present for the drawing. The first and second place winners were announced.
1: Third prize winner is. Obadiah Johnson. And what do I win? Mr. Johnson, you have won this magnificent green bottle. Why? Why everybody knows you got rooked on them bottles, boy. Fourth prize winner is Mrs. Hannah Esmond. Mrs. Esmond, why, you have won a prize that will become a family heirloom. This magnificent green bottle.
5: (laughs) Well, I never, I never.
1: Fifth prize winner is Mr. John Custer. Mr. Custer, you have won a prize that all who enter your home will admire. This magnificent green bottle. Sixth prize winner is Mr. and Mrs. Will Sawyer. You have won this magnificent green bottle.
2: People, Barnum learned that day, like to win, no matter how small the prize.
1: Boy, it's the best joke of the year, and you done it.
2: Barnum had learned another important lesson. Charging people for a good laugh and a story to tell isn't taking advantage of anyone. Mr. Barnum wishes to proceed with the agreement reached between he
1: and Miss Charity Hallett.
2: Around this time Barnum met Charity Hallett, a devout Congregationalist whom he would marry in 1829 at the age of 19. With his new bride beside him, Barnum set out to forge a name for himself in business and like his father, he juggled several jobs. He bought his own store in Bethel. He ran a lottery. He started a newspaper, and much to Charity's dismay, he adopted a new religion—universalism. Universalists oppose Jesus Christ's claims of being the sole source for one salvation. They believe all people universally go to heaven. In 1831, Barnum used his newspaper to attack a minister in nearby Danbury, Connecticut. This offense earned him 60 days in jail, a sentence he proudly served.
5: Reports had it that it was wallpapered and uh, not that uncomfortable, and he could continue to publish his paper right from
2: the cell. Which Barnum did, painting himself as a little guy persecuted by a corrupt religious elite. This won him public support, got him out of jail, and made him a political force to be reckoned with. It also taught him yet another valuable lesson. There's no such thing as bad publicity. Although Charity didn't share the same enthusiasm.
4: She became more conservative all the time and he became uh, more audacious in the sorts of things he was doing. She was always pleading with him, please don't get involved with this. Just get yourself a normal business life and be a normal Bethel husband.
2: For the next few years Barnum tried to be a normal Bethel husband. He tended to his store, his lottery, his newspaper, and his wife. But Barnum was a showman at heart, and when he looked into the future, all he could see was untapped potential.
1: Amusement's what they want.
2: And when we come back,
0: more on the life of P.T. Barnum. And if you're interested in hearing our podcasts, go to Our American Network and sign up. When we come back, we continue with the life of P.T. Barnum. is Our American Stories, and we continue with our hour-long celebration of the life of Phineas Taylor Barnum. Let's pick up where we last left off. In
2: 1833, Charity gave birth to the first of four daughters.
5: It's a girl.
2: But the roller coaster, which was P.T. Barnum's life, took another sudden turn. The next year, Connecticut outlawed lotteries. A few weeks later, his store went bust. Then, In that same month came the final blow. His newspaper couldn't compete with the Danbury recorder, and so it folded. And so in 1834, with nothing left to lose, Barnum moved his family to New York City to seek fame and fortune. In 1835, again against Charity's wishes, Barnum used almost every penny they had to buy the contract for Joyce Heth, a slave who looked not just old, but positively ancient. Weighing only 46 pounds, she was toothless, blind, and almost completely paralyzed. Incredibly, Heth was being exhibited as the 161-year-old former nurse to George Washington. And as preposterous as the hoax was, Barnum was right. People love to be humbugged, but under Joyce Heth's second-rate promoter, the audience failed to connect with her tall tales. But Barnum saw a gold mine. He asked to meet the woman who, as she often declared, had personally nursed the father of all founding fathers.
5: Yeah, who might you be? Your new
1: owner. Oh no, not owner. Slavery is surely against God's plan. I have purchased you. That much is true. But I now manumit you. I'll instruct lawyers to
3: prepare the papers of emancipation.
5: Well, what's going to become
1: of me? Well, I shall employ you for cash to do this you have always done.
5: Don't you care how old I really am? I already know. You're
1: 161. I'd rather not discuss it further.
2: Barnum was a crackerjack salesman he understood that he would have to repackage his new talent but first he needed to sell his idea to his pious wife charity
3: i'm not
1: deceiving anyone people believe what they want to deep down they know the truth but if for just one moment they can imagine something that could not be but believe it all the same then who's the poorer
5: we will be, if
6: you're wrong.
2: Barnum knew that fishing for an audience was one thing, but keeping them coming through the doors was another. Barnum thought that if he wrapped his rusty old hook in the American flag, people would swallow it whole. The curtains opened, and there sat the pipe-smoking caretaker of America's greatest founding father.
5: Young measure joy.
2: Barnum would invite clergy, Because he knew that they would respond on cue to Heth's performance, further validating her, while in turn increasing attendance. Heth earned Barnum a sizable profit before her death a year later.
7: And now, ladies and gentlemen.
2: Barnum next managed a juggler named Vivala and toured him up and down the East Coast. During his travels, he met another juggler named Roberts, who claimed he could out-juggle Vavala. So Barnum secretly managed Roberts and Vavala, and staged what seemed like spontaneous challenge matches between the two so-called rivals. The audience would lay bets. Barnum would collect a fee from both jugglers, plus a percentage of the gate. Everybody won. This gimmick was an original stroke of marketing genius. Today, competing products are often put out by the same company. In 1841, Barnum took his biggest gamble yet. While most of the country's stuffy museums were going bankrupt, he decided to buy the American Museum in Manhattan. With hardly any money in the bank, Barnum had an audacious plan. He arranged to have lunch with a bank executive.
0: Of course, I'd need collateral.
1: I have only some land left me by my grandfather. Really? Tell me more. Well, actually, I I just assume not risk that. Oh, do tell. Simpson? Well, why? It's called Ivy Island. It's uh, several acres near the mouth of the Raritan River in southern Stamford. An island? Connecticut? Hmm. Interesting. Ready?
2: And so, at the age of 31, Barnum embarked on yet another new career. Museum owner. The American Museum had been a stale center of learning. Not so under P.T. Barnum. Fun came first. Barnum charged his patrons a 25 cent admission fee. His museum was more like what we now know as a circus sideshow. There were exotic and deformed animals, plus giants dwarves, fat boys, albinos, gypsies, sword swallowers, bearded ladies, Siamese twins, contortionists, fortune tellers, and other treasure troves of odd human curiosities. But Barnum was not making fun of these people. He once said, I want folks to say, what an amazing person. He also recognized that he was probably the most extraordinary curiosity in the establishment,
4: You have to imagine a time where there was no museum of natural history. There were no wax museums. There were no popular entertainments. There were no sideshows.
2: Of course, some of Barnum's exhibits were classic humbugs. His six-foot-tall man-eating chicken was a six-foot man eating chicken. But his most popular curiosity was the Fiji mermaid.
1: The greatest natural curiosity in the world.
2: A ridiculous fraud combining the top half of a monkey and the bottom half of a fish.
1: We're going over the heads of experts, direct to the people.
2: In fact, people were having such a great time that it posed a problem. How to move them through the museum more quickly so that new paying customers could get in? His solution was pure P.T. Barnum. He put up a sign near the back door which read, This way to the egress.
3: egress.
1: What do you
5: suppose that is? Female egg, I should think. Come. Cool.
2: Since most people didn't know that egress meant exit, they flocked through the door to see what even more bizarre creature awaited them, only to find themselves back out on the Broadway sidewalk.
6: And instead
4: of being mad at P.T. Barnum, they'd smile and say, oh, that's a knee-slapper, he really got us again. And they would tell their friends, make sure you go up there and see the egress.
2: Then in November 1842, the 32 year old showman discovered a distant relative of his named Charles Stratton.
1: Will you shake hands with me, Charles?
2: How do you do?
6: How do you do?
2: A five year old midget destined to become the biggest little legend in America. Stratton, who had stopped growing when he was seven months old, weighed only 15 pounds and barely came up to Barnum's knees. Remarkably articulate for his age, Tom Stratton Thumb. gave the appearance of being much older. A soldier, Barnum christened him
1: General Tom Thumb.
2: Barnum immediately began exhibiting him, first at his Barnum American Museum, and then on the road. Are you ready to learn an act,
1: boy? It would be a treat, sir. Excellent! <laughs>
2: <laughs> the utterly charming Tom Thumb never grew, but his reputation did. He danced, sang songs, and made jokes. And every move was meticulously choreographed by Barnum himself. In his first year on the road, Tom learned to drink wine with his meals. And at seven, he took up cigar smoking. They toured America throughout the 1840s, and even got to meet President James Polk.
3: Tom is probably one of the first national celebrities in the United States, actually, through the management and promotion of
8: P.T. Barnum. way ahead of his time in understanding what people wanted to see.
2: And not just people in America. Their travels took them to Europe, culminating in an audience before England's Queen Victoria.
8: The
1: general says... Queen, ma'am! May I not shake hands with the Prince
5: of Wales? We would be pleased
1: hello prince hello tom the prince is taller than i am but i feel bigger than anybody
8: <laughs> the man is the originator of the publicity stunt but they actually held the ladder against queen victoria so that he could climb up uh and she it is said even though she was queen victoria gave him a little peck on the cheek it has been
5: a pleasure for us to meet both of you the
6: honor is ours,
8: your majesty. It was scandalous. It was scandalous in, in in that day and age. And and certainly he created an audience. This this person, this Tom Thumb, came back from, from Europe, a star, and the audience was created. That's what Barnum did best. That was the, the genius.
5: Goodbye.
0: And when we come back, more on the life of P.T. Barnum. It's quite a story, and it just keeps getting better. By the way, if you haven't seen it, check out the movie The Greatest Showman. Hugh Jackman hits it out of the park. It's terrific and celebrates again this great American life. The life of P.T. Barnum continues after these commercial messages. Continue with the life of P. T. Barnum, and let's face it—he was the Shakespeare of entertainment, and perhaps the world's first super agent. Let's continue with his story.
2: When Barnum returned to the United States with Tom Thumb in 1848, he had become rich and famous. He celebrated his success by moving his family out of their apartment and into a palace inspired by the Royal Pavilion fairy tale castle in Brighton, England. Barnum created a three-story oriental style structure in Bridgeport, Connecticut with numerous porches and arches the whole thing topped by multiple onion domes
1: your new home
2: he called his home Iranistan it was one of the most lavish and most expensive palaces America had ever seen unfortunately four years later a construction worker dropped a lit pipe and it burnt Iranistan to the ground By the end of the 1840s, Tom Thumb was established enough, and old enough, to tour on his own. Barnum started looking for new talent. Some say he was also tired of being associated almost exclusively with the odd and freakish, that he yearned for a more respectable image. In 1849,
1: he found it. Good day. I'm P.T. Barnum. Would you give my card to
8: Miss Jenny Lynn, please?
5: You've done so yourself, Mr. Barnum. I am Jenny Lind. Please.
2: Jenny Lind was a European opera star, known affectionately among her fans as the Swedish Nightingale. Barnum decided that he must be the man to bring her to America, at any price. And that's exactly how he got her.
1: I'm a direct man,
2: Mr. Barnum offered Lind nearly $200,000 plus a percentage of the box office, for a 150-show American tour. That was an unheard of sum of money at the time, especially to bring an opera singer to a country where the average person never heard of opera. Furthermore, Barnum had to borrow most of the money. A failure would leave him utterly bankrupt. So Lynn was flabbergasted to learn that Barnum had taken such a huge risk, without ever having heard her sing.
1: The is open.
2: But Barnum yeah, knew that faith alone was house. not enough. He had to put his promotional prowess into high head gear head to make this gamble pay off. $50. So he spent another small fortune $60. creating a media $60. frenzy. He hired a renowned journalist $65. to invent weekly Jenny Lynn stories. $65. The public ate them up. $70. It was the beginning $70. of what became known $100. as Lindomania. $100. Barnum also came up with the idea of dividing arena seats into different color sections to reflect different ticket prices. Dollars. A first for its time, dollars. still a common practice today.
1: One ninety. dollars.
2: He auctioned off tickets for her New York City debut to the social elite.
1: Two hundred and twenty-five dollars.
2: These men could well afford the outrageous cost in order to please their wives and also to be seen at what was rapidly becoming the event of the year, if not a lifetime.
7: Sold to Mr. Getty! She was known by just about everybody. I mean, there were 30,000 people on the dock to greet her boat when it came
8: to America. There were bands, there were people screaming,
5: fog horns blaring as Jenny Lynn came off of this boat.
2: As Lynn prepared her voice backstage, Barnum began to second-guess his business decision.
5: It's a rowdy crowd.
2: After all, opening night in front of a rowdy New York City crowd could be a very dangerous thing.
1: Look at her. She looks like a scrub woman gotten up for a ball. I can survive this disastrous tour with this ungainly woman who, for all I know, can't sing a note.
2: After the opening act got booed off stage, Jenny Lynn shared some final words for the doubting Barnum as she prepared to make her entrance.
5: When we first met you thought I was beautiful. I'm neither beautiful nor ugly. I'm just a plain woman with a gift from God, which I told you when we first met. So wait and see. When I sing, I will be beautiful and that beauty. It's the beauty of God shining through me. So, since you've created the myth of Jenny Lind, I shall be that myth.
2: The crowd loved her. Barnum had created Lindomania, and along with it, a new cultural phenomenon, celebrity. Recognizing the public's hunger for anything Jenny, businessmen began making products that the singer put her name on. The first-ever celebrity-endorsed items.
7: This is a lamp with uh, Jenny Lind's image. Actually, it was originally a candle holder, but uh, Barnum was not the only one to take advantage of the Lindomania in America. There were a lot of things that were able to be bought by the masses. You know, Jenny Lind hats and Jenny Lind teapots and Jenny Lind china. You know, today we'd buy t-shirts.
5: So all of the terrific marketing ploys that Barnum used with Jenny Lind have recycled, been reinvented and what I find fascinating is what we find or think of as new today. He thought up more than a hundred years ago.
2: His high stake gamble had paid off. Even personal tragedy barely seemed to slow him down. Barnum's wife Charity took ill, eventually becoming incapable of taking care of herself. We'll never know how deeply this affected him, because he protected his private life with the same zeal he promoted his public image. In 1851, Barnum tackled his most ambitious venture yet, which would take him from riches to rags. Barnum shared his ambitious plans at a press conference.
1: We will build East Bridgeport.
2: But Barnum's partner, Chauncey Jerome, a well respected successful businessman, skipped out, leaving Barnum a half a million dollars in the lurch.
5: See? He's broken.
2: Half a lifetime of accumulated wealth, power, and prestige were wiped out overnight. But an old friend arrived at Barnum's front door, offering to help.
1: Tom! 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 (laughs) Hello, Mr. Barnum! (laughs) Let me look at you. Tell me what do I owe this on? I want to help you. Help me? Yes, sir. You see, I'm prospering. You rescued me when God knows what kind of a life I would have had. Now it's time for me to pay you back. I want you to manage me again. In
2: 1859, with the help of Tom Thumb, Barnum bought back his American Museum and purchased a new and more modest home in Bridgeport, which he named Lindencroft. Today, what was once Lindencroft, is a public space called Seaside Park, lorded over by a statue of P.T. Barnum. 1865 was a pivotal year for America and also for P.T. Barnum. A decade earlier in 1854, Barnum left his slave-supporting Democratic Party and became one of the first to join a new anti-slavery political group called the Republicans. Eleven years later, he was elected to the Connecticut Legislature and cast his proudest vote for the abolition of slavery. Two years later, something else happened. The destiny which had been chasing Barnum all his life, the circus, had finally come to town. The biggest draw to Barnum's American Museum had always been its animal attractions. In the spring of 1867, he took his animals on the road, his first traveling circus. The circus returned to New York City in the fall, so that the animals could spend the winter in Barnum's heated American museum. The night of March 2nd, 1868, was bitterly cold, and the museum's furnace was working overtime. Something, perhaps a wandering spark in the boiler room, started a fire. Despite the valiant efforts of the fire brigade, Barnum's museum burned to the ground. The water from the pumps froze on the remains, leaving only an eerie ice palace. And when we come back, more on the life of P.T.
0: Barnum. And if you're interested in hearing our podcasts, go to Our American Network and sign up. There's hundreds of hours there for you and your family to enjoy. When we come back, we continue with the life of P.T. Barnum. Turn to the life story of P.T. Barnum, who helped reshape the entertainment business as we know it. Anyone who goes to a Cirque du Soleil show in Las Vegas has to think about P.T. Barnum. Forget the circus as you know it. He invented entertainment as we know it. And again, we love bringing you these stories here on Our American Stories. Go to Our American Network to sign up for our podcasts. That's ouramericannetwork.com. And sign up for our podcast and send the link to friends, please. We'd love to have you share these stories with everybody you know. Now, let's continue with the final installment of the life of P.T. Barnum.
2: All the circus animals died in the blaze. Devastated, Barnum went into self imposed retirement and wrote a best selling autobiography, then went on a speaking tour he called The Art of Money Getting.
1: People must be free to dare, to risk, to strive if a nation is to be great. My wealth was made possible by my freedom. The first charge of all who would govern should be to guarantee that freedom or all is lost. And that is our American way.
2: Needless to say, the public ate it up while the intellectual elite shot him down.
1: Until we meet again!
2: In 1871, Barnum abruptly ended his retirement, prompted, as he put it, that rest is only found in action. The action Barnum took was to get back into the circus business with a vengeance. He put every lesson he had learned about salesmanship over 50-odd years into his new circus. Knowing you had to spend money to make money, Barnum spent liberally on advance advertising in cities where his circus was touring. He also wrote children's books based on the characters and attractions in the show. These he sold along with other memorabilia. This too, as in his promotion with Jenny Lind, was another early form of what is now called merchandising. From Star Wars action figures to Disney's Frozen memorabilia, without the ingenuity of P.T. Barnum, today's movie collectibles wouldn't look the same. Barnum didn't just break new American ground promoting his show. He pioneered its many technical and creative innovations. The traditional European circus, which was also the prevalent style in America at the time, was a one ring show. Barnum ordered tents big enough for 10,000 people, which meant not everyone would be able to see what was going on in one ring.
0: P.T. Barnum being an American. <laughs> wanted something different. He wanted
1: to make it bigger and better than, than the circuses were in Europe. We're going to make something bigger than the sum of its parts, the
8: Three Ring Circus.
2: And with this single brilliant stroke, the modern circus was born.
8: This is the one place in the inter- entertainment world where less is not more, more is more.
2: One of Barnum's first revolutionary circus ideas became the genesis of the modern day movie trailer. He knew that if people were given a taste of excitement, they would want more. Barnum proposed to one of his business associates the idea that before the shows, they parade the circus through the visiting town so they would get a glimpse of the amazing things that would unfold under the big top. Spellbound, the people would follow the parade right into the circus grounds. But Barnum's business associate was not buying it.
4: Americans are no different than any other people. Damn me, sir, but they
1: are. Only the best and most curious people came to America. The sort who pay to find out for themselves. By giving it away? Precisely. And once they've tasted it, they'll pay for all they can get.
2: Barnum even invented catchphrases, which not only helped promote his circus, they have since become common slang. For instance, jumbo.
5: most people don't realize that we have jumbo shrimp and jumbo mortgages and jumbo eggs today because of Jumbo the Elephant
2: Then there's this famous phrase written by Barnum, first proclaimed by the circus Mm -hmm. ringmaster before the start of the show
1: Ladies and gentlemen and children of all
2: ages The term rain or shine meant the show would go on under the big top no matter what the weather outside. Let's get the show on the road was the cry heard when it was time to move the circus to a new location. People had to hold their horses because Barnum's elephants were parading down the main streets of their town. Grandstanding referred to VIPs who would visit the circus grandstand to be seen by the public and throwing one's hat into the ring began when a politician literally threw his hat into the circus ring from the grandstand to signify his decision to run for re-election. Barnum built America's first public aquarium in 1849. So when one of his whales died, Barnum initiated a term of compensation for his disappointed customers.
1: Today's heavy rain appears to have affected the aquarium condition of our whales. But, but, the great American museum will give each and every one of you a check, which you may cash for admission on another day. Uh, Mr. Greenwood here will arrange for your rain checks.
2: But the most memorable phrase concocted by P.T. Barnum was heard for the very first time in 1872, when he decided to call his circus The greatest show on earth.
1: I love you still, my darling. In
2: 1873, Barnum's wife of 44 years, Charity, died after her long illness. Will you marry me? Yes. Within a year, he married his longtime friend, Nancy Fish. She was 24, he was 64. But even at 64, when most men of his day were long retired, running the biggest circus in the world didn't put a dent in Barnum's momentum. He gave business lectures at universities, started another newspaper, and opened an entertainment arena called... Madison Square Garden. In 1874,
1: at a cost of $35,000... I threw my hat in the ring! And in 1875,
2: he became mayor of Bridgeport, Connecticut. After a one-year stint as mayor, Barnum turned his full attention back to the circus, where his name and fortune were now irrevocably joined. James Bailey owned the largest competing circus in America. He also owned an elephant named Jezebel who birthed a baby elephant. Barnum sent a telegram to Bailey, offering to buy both elephants.
1: Uh, Gentlemen, I am prepared to offer $100,000 for the elephant called Jezebel and her newborn offspring. Awaiting your acceptance by Return Wire, P.T. Barnum, etc., etc.
2: Bailey declined. uh, Barnum was not happy.
4: Damn it. That's not all, sir. Well, go on, go on. Uh, I have a report that, uh... They've reproduced your telegram on a 12-sheet advertising board, sir, uh, with the words, what Barnum thinks of the baby elephant.
1: <laughs> Whoever did that has brass
4: up? I like it. I like
1: it. Who signed that telegram? James A. Bailey, sir. P. T. Barnum.
2: Barnum finally met someone worthy of his steel and merged with his rival in 1880. This created the biggest and still the most famous circus in the world. The Barnum & Bailey Circus, the greatest show on earth. In 1885, Barnum retired from the circus, which passed to James Bailey. In the fall of 1890, Barnum suffered a stroke, which confined him to bed. His physical condition deteriorated quickly, but his spirits stayed high.
1: Well, does it say Barnum is dead, finally gone? Yes, yes, it does. Front page obituary.
2: Oh, good trick. Faced with his impending death, he became curious about what people would say about him after he was gone. Barnum's wife read to him his own obituary. Two weeks later, on April 7th, 1891, at the age of 80, the New York Sun was forced to run the real thing. With his family at his bedside, Barnum turned to his wife.
1: Nancy, ask Bailey what the box office was at the garden last night.
2: And with that, Barnum passed from this world into eternity. After James Bailey's death in 1906, the Ringling Brothers merged the Barnum and Bailey circus with their own. On May, 2017, after 146 years, the greatest show on earth shut down for the last time. In closing we would like to clear something up. Contrary to popular belief P.T. Barnum never said there's a sucker born every minute. He always had more respect than that for what he called the audience. In fact, his philosophy was more along the lines of there's a customer born every minute. These customers were drawn to Barnum's storytelling talents, his understanding of human nature, and his burly good nature. So anytime you go to a circus, a fair, or for that matter a concert hall, a movie theater, or an amusement park, you'll find us, the audience, laughing, hollering, and usually getting our money's worth. And for that, you can thank P.T. Barnum.
0: And what a story, what a story, and only in America, folks. And great job, as always, by Greg Hengler, who does so many of these long, deep pieces about American icons. And I just always learn so much. I think I know a lot, I've read a lot, but every time I hear one of his pieces, and so many of the pieces by our team, I just learn more. And go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our podcasts. Stroll around, you're taking a long drive, load them in, and take a and the whole family can enjoy them They're safe for the family And my goodness, they entertain and educate at the same time Merchandising, modern promotion That Madison Square Garden story Heck, I'd never heard that one The Life of P.T. Barnum Here on Our American Stories Our American Stories, and you're listening to the Staple Singers, and it's hard to interrupt this song, and this single, well, one of the most famous of the Staple Singers, and if you ever get a chance, just go on YouTube and watch Mavis do her thing with pop staples. It's a beautiful thing. And we thought we'd play this song by the Staple Singers, not as the story of a song, which we love to do here on this show, but because the story we're going to hear is about A stapler. And not just any ordinary stapler. Here's Jesse.
4: A candy apple red swingline stapler plays a prominent role in Office Space, a 1999 dark comedy by Mike Judge about a fictitious Texas software company and the everyday people who work there. I believe you have my stapler. One of those office dwellers is Milton Waddams, played by one of today's most prolific
0: character actors, Stephen Root. He's an invisible nuisance that... Must be tolerated because he's a human on the planet, but he takes up space, and and he's, he's not a bad human being to them. I don't consider Milton over the top at all. I think it's one of my subtlest roles, actually. Even though it's a, a big character, it's
4: it's done really small. Milton is an overweight, aging nerd with prescription glasses so thick that you can't see his eyes. I
3: don't care if they lay me off either, because I told, I told Bill that if they move my desk one more time, then... Then then I'm quitting. I'm going to quit. And and I told Dom, too, because they've moved my desk four times already this year, and I used to be over by the window, and I could see the squirrels, and they
4: were married, but then they switched. He devotes his work days to guarding his red swing line against his boss, who is constantly moving his desk and stealing his stapler.
3: Hi, Milton. What's I, happening? Mel, we're going to need to go ahead and move you downstairs into storage B. No, we I, I told I uh, have could some have new people coming if, in and no, we need all the there, space we can get. But there's no space. So if you could in, just go ahead and if, pack up your it, stuff it, and move it down there, but, no, that would be terrific. I, I, I was Okay. I could stay. It, excuse me. Yeah, I, I believe you have my stapler.
4: But Milton Waddams eventually gets his revenge against the smug boss who takes his stapler away. I can set the building on fire. By setting the building on fire. Now, Office Space barely earned back the $10 million it cost News Corp's 20th Century Fox to make the film. But in 2000, when it came out on video, it was clear that the movie was reaching a particular audience. Cubicle-dwelling computer programmers. For months, Swingline fielded demands for that red stapler pouring in by phone and email. Corporate accounts payable, Nina speaking. Just a moment. There was just a slight little problem. Swingline didn't make bright red staplers. The one in the movie was custom painted by a prop designer. When real life Milton Waddamses found out they couldn't buy one from the manufacturer, they simply made their own creating a thriving black market on eBay for Swingline's that were simply spray-painted red. Then, finally, three years after the red stapler buzz began, Swingline began selling a real red stapler, its basic 747 model, now with a new paint job. Office Space has turned out to be one of the more effective, if unusual, recent examples of product placement in films, Now, the movie didn't just spark sales for Swingline, it invented the whole idea of a bright red stapler to begin with. Now, the sleepy Midwestern company that made the first top-loading stapler more than 60 years ago has discovered a new approach to marketing Office products to younger generations. Best of all, the Office Space movie plug didn't cost Swingline a single dime. Through the magic of product placement, it's now common for advertisers to have their brands mentioned or used in feature films terms of these deals are among Hollywood's most closely guarded secrets. These days, they typically involve advertising or cross-promotion swaps worth millions of dollars. In Swingline's case, though, it was sheer luck, not money, that brought it into office space. I believe you have my stapler. Swingline executives didn't even recognize the marketing opportunity when the movie's producers approached them back in 1999. The company figured its mainstay customers were unlikely to trade up and declined the pitch. Still, the writer and director of Office Space, Mike Judge, best known as the creator of Beavis and Butthead, was determined to keep the red stapler in his film. Swingline did not stand in his way. The new product is a big deal in the stapler community, says Clark Allen, a 29-year-old Dallas web consultant and host of VirtualStapler.com where people exchange stories about staplers and stapler injuries. The red staplers have quickly become the most popular item on the Swingline website, which is the only place you can buy them, $29 a piece. And that is the story of a stapler. Perhaps the most famous stapler there ever was. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories.
3: But then they switched. From the swing line to the Boston stapler, but I kept my swing line stapler because it didn't bind up as much, and, and I kept the staples for the swing line stapler. Okay, Milton. And, oh, no, it's not okay because if they make me, if they, if they take my, my stapler, then I'll, I'll, I'll have to, I'll the building on
5: fire.
0: And great job as always, Jesse. And we got to order a couple of those swing line staplers. The red ones get on it. And stapler, virtualstapler.com. Stapler injuries? Stapler stories? Jesse, I think that's a segment. I think that's a segment. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We sublime stuff, silly stuff. We do it all here on the show. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. And please sign up for the podcast. Again, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and tell friends about what we're doing. If you're sick of the yelling and the screaming, the politics, the downers, and just, well, sick of it all. Tune into our show for a little uplift, for a little laugh. You'll learn, you'll laugh, you'll think, you'll cry. That's our goal here. Make you feel something. Sometimes you'll learn something. And again, sometimes you'll just get a chuckle out of what we do, we hope. OurAmericanNetwork.org to learn more. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories, where we love to tell great stories about love, death, sports, and of course, the thing we do most in our lives, work. And occasionally we bring you public policy stories, but only when it hits the pavement. That is, only when it affects you, the listener. And they're usually brought to us by our field correspondent, Alex Cortez. Take a listen to his great piece on why it cost, well, almost $1,400 for an hour or two of nursery care at the hospital and why he wasn't told and what it was like to go and figure out what that bill was like. It's both funny, it's both aggravating, and in the end it's a lesson in pricing, transparency, and everything's wrong and everything that's wrong with our health care system. And now Alex brings us this field report.
3: Michigan, any employee who makes over $100,000 within a school system, it gets reported. It has to be reported on the school's website. They don't necessarily have to name the employee, um, but they do have to report it somewhere, what the position is.
7: You're listening to Jared Skorup, a policy analyst at Michigan's free market think tank, the Mackinac Center.
3: And so somebody in Lansing had tipped us off because they noticed that somebody in the district was making over $200,000 and they were curious about it. And so we dug into it, and what we found was that it was the head of the state's uh, public employee union, the Michigan Education Association.
7: The MEA, the state's largest teachers union. The Mackinac Center discovers this, and they're puzzled. Why is the prominent, well-known head of a private organization, just like the CEO of Goldman Sachs listed as an employee of a public school system? a taxpayer-supported system, and making more money than any other employee, including its head, the superintendent. $20,000 more.
3: This is the Steve Cook story. So Steve Cook, the head of the MEA, was a paraprofessional.
7: A teacher's assistant at the Lansing School District.
3: He was making an hourly wage when he left in 1991. He was making somewhere around $25,000 a year.
7: He left to become the treasurer of the MEA and later ascended to the presidency.
3: And so at the time, his pension would have been, you know, maybe $10,000 or so once he retired. Should have been,
7: for his time as a paraprofessional.
3: What we discovered in digging through this was that He was technically employed by the school district, but he was paid by the union. And what the union was doing was it was funneling money through the school district to pay his salary.
7: And his pension.
3: That sounds really weird to people. Why, Why would that happen? It is
7: really weird. My boss at our private company doesn't pay the local school district around here the amount of my salary and pension, which, by the way, I don't have. Only 35% of private employees do. But they can then pay me. I had never even heard of such an arrangement before this story. What's even the point of doing
3: this whole rigmarole? The reason was to spike his pension benefits.
7: From a $10,000 a year retirement benefit from his work as a paraprofessional to over a hundred thousand dollars a year for as many years as he lives a public employee's pension is based upon the number of years they've been on the payroll and the amount they were paid in their final three to five years so by remaining on the public payroll despite doing no work for the public steve cook could balloon his number of years Adding twenty-seven years without work, and blew in the all-important factor of his salary in his final years, from a pension based off of a salary between sixteen to thirty-four thousand, when Steve Cook actually worked for the school district, to a
3: two hundred and one thousand-dollar one when he didn't. The long story short is he never made, You know he made twenty-five thousand dollars. A year that would have been about that's about the salary of somebody who's a paraprofessional working hourly in Lansing schools. So he's going to make a pension four times as large as he ever made as a salary, Um, and there's no other way to say it. The
7: fact that Steve Cook put together this complicated scheme at all certainly means one thing that the taxpayer supported pension plan for public school employees was far more generous than what he could get with the MEA's private plan for the private employees who run the teachers' union, a private pension fund that's several hundred million dollars in debt.
3: It's meant that the union has had to go to members and hike their dues payments. Um, and so this this program is one way for them to avoid some of the costs um, that's eating into their budget.
7: By shifting Steve Cook's pension over to the public pension fund, The union was shifting over their own private problems, their own debt, over to taxpayers and letting it become everyone's problem. And sure, wouldn't it be nice if we could do that too, just throwing over our personal debt to taxpayers. Here you go, it's yours. But then you'd also have to live with yourself, which could be hard. Besides union executives, no one else in the private sector could get away with this.
3: CEO of Coca Cola, we would be outraged if he started filtering his money, his $5 million salary, through a school district in order to get hundreds of millions of dollars worth of a pension. We'd be outraged by that because we would understand he works for Coca Cola. That's a private company. He should not be spiking the pension.
7: And 99.9% of public employees couldn't pull this off either. Steve Cook could only do this because he had leverage. Leverage that comes from his power to threaten a teacher strike, leaving children without instruction, as happened in Chicago in 2012.
3: The superintendent in Lansing, who, uh, he agreed to this deal in the early 90s. There was a former superintendent. And what he thought was, what sometimes happens is a employee will leave for a couple of years and they do what's called an educator on loan. And sometimes it's they'll go teach at a community college or they'll go to another district for a couple of years. And so they'll enter an agreement basically to say, okay, this is a way so that we keep you keep your job here and you're able to come back. And the superintendent who did this agreement with Steve Cook said this was meant to be a short-term thing. Richard
7: Halleck, that former superintendent who agreed to loan Steve Cook, said about it, You want a positive relationship with the MEA, you pick the hill to die on. We were going to be cooperative. Now that's leverage, folks, when a union, a private organization, gets you, a taxpayer representative, to do something that you may not want to do because you fear them. It wasn't the hill to
3: die on. The superintendent who did this agreement with Steve Cook said this was meant to be a short-term thing. And here we are, 25 years later, and he's still taking advantage of the same program. Can you
7: be called an educator on loan if you never intend to go back?
3: And that's why the superintendent who agreed to this um, understands that it is not how the program is supposed to work and and is, in fact, really just a scam on on taxpayers and on the pension system. Um, And it should outrage school employees. And we have a pension system, $27 billion in debt. And yet here we do. We have enough money, apparently, for union executives to to be able to spike uh, their pension and, and, and make way more money than they ever made as school employees.
7: Taxpayers may be forced to bail out the bankrupt pension system and school employees could have their pensions reduced. Lakeisha Allen is one of those school employees. Like Steve Cook, she's on the Lansing Public School System's payroll. But unlike him, she actually does work for the schools. She's a secretary making $23,000 a year and is forced to pay four hundred and fifty six of that to a union that she doesn't want to be a member of and whose head prioritizes his pension over hers. Lakeisha told the Mackinac Center's watchdog publication, Michigan Capital Confidential, quote, It terrifies me. And if others knew what was going on, I'm sure they would be frightened too. Secretaries are severely underpaid we the working class are the ones who are going to suffer behind the steve cooks of the world in the school district for allowing this to happen and after the break i'll bring you my investigation of steve cook's questionable compensation scheme how it came to be and i'll talk to those with responsibility for it this is alex cortez
0: and great job on that alex when we come back more of the story of Steve Cook. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're back with Alex's investigation of Steve Cook, who was a teaching assistant at the Lansing schools until the unions asked that he be loaned out to them in nineteen ninety one while still technically being employed by the school district, even all these years later. This is one strange arrangement, folks, but one that allows Steve Cook, a private union employee, to spike his public pension to over one hundred thousand dollars a year. That's right, a hundred thousand dollars a year to not work. And at a time when taxpayers And school employees who actually work at the schools are on the hook for a pension fund debt that amounts to $27 billion. Just imagine the CEO of Ford doing this. We'd never hear the end of it. But this top union boss has been allowed to skate by. Let's now go to Alex's investigation where he tries to talk with the people who've got responsibility for this.
7: I tried beginning my investigation with the guy who seems to be holding all the cards in this story, Steve Cook. So I called the MEA spokesman David Krim to see if we can set up an interview with Steve. He told me he'd get back to me. I called back nine days later to follow up, but never heard back. Now 29 days later, I followed up again. This time though, I got some clarity, Steve Cook turns out not to be interested. And I am sure he's not, but everyone else is, as you'll hear about more later.
0: Time is running and passing and passing and running and running and passing. So you all better get right at this time, because it might be no next time, y'all.
7: So I next tried to speak with the head of the Lansing Public Schools, Yvonne Kamal Kanul, who seemingly is maintaining this arrangement with Mr. Cook. I wanted to ask her why. And they pass me along to her spokesman, Bob Colt. I follow up with Bob several times more, and he finally tells me that Superintendent Yvonne Kamal kanul passed on an interview. I'm now starting to feel like this is some dirty family secret that no one wants to talk about. What is our situation, Dad? So I try a new group of folks, the school district board members. They also got responsibility in this. Those pesky taxpayers elected them to represent their interests. And the first board member I got a hold of was a lovely Colombian-American named Amy Hodgen. And
5: my accent is
7: not horrible? No, your accent's great.
5: You know, with age... I used to have a view. Be- I learned English almost perfectly, but then I had a cerebral hemorrhage, and I had to learn to talk. And I, my, I learned to talk <laughs> with an accent again. It was so depressing.
7: Amy told me that she wasn't allowed to speak with me. The superintendent, the same one who wouldn't agree to an interview, told the board members that only she and the board president could do interviews about this issue and any other issue, as if Amy and the other elected board members don't have a right to speak.
5: We should be able to not only discuss it as a board, but we should be able to discuss it with parents too.
7: The superintendent seems to have forgotten. School board members don't work for her. They work for the taxpayers who elected them. But Amy asked me to try to follow the rules and first speak with the board president, Peter Spadafore, and that if he wouldn't speak to me, she would, in violation of the superintendent's order. So I called Peter, and once again, this person that I call with some level of responsibility for the Steve Cook arrangement passed... With unanswered questions, I went back to Amy to see what she knew about Steve Cook's arrangement.
5: There have been articles from the press, uh, but it's, it's a subject that has not been, I mean, discussed by the board.
7: Why haven't they discussed this? Do they think they can't? I mean, they're the school board. They're the ones taxpayers put in charge. They're the employer, right?
5: Honestly, I have no idea at this point. What were the terms? I think it's time that we we should be able to discuss it and give the right answers to whoever asked us. Public schools are criticized constantly. And, And so for board members and for superintendents, it's frustrating that everything you read is negative. And for Pete's sake, there's gotta be something positive that we're doing. Uh, we have excellent teachers, we have programs, especially in Lansing, that you don't have in the rest of the state. We have Spanish immersion, we have Chinese immersion, we have Montessori, we have incredible programs. And yet, nobody seems to write and say, oh my god, my kid is going to that class, and my kid has the most fantastic teacher. So it's always the negative.
7: Amy's right. It's Steve Cook's determined to continue his arrangement and allow all this negative attention to keep coming at the school district.
5: It is a problem. Uh, it is written on, on social media at least once a week by, by a parent. So it's not it's not like it's not being discussed out there by parents. And again, it's sad. It's, it's these little things, or big, they're big things for parents, which in turn reflect on us and it's something that we have nothing to do with it and has nothing to do with the education of the
7: kids." Even if the school board refuses to meet about this issue, why hasn't the school district at least exercised their right to put an end to Steve Cook's contract? Well, they say it's complicated. Michigan Capital Confidential received a copy of Steve Cook's actual agreement in response to a Freedom of Information Act request. And there's three words in it that the school district believes prohibits them from ending the contract. Those three words? Shall be renewed. As in, shall be renewed in perpetuity. So when the contract was up for renewal at the end of the first three years, the superintendent at that time, Richard Halleck, approached Steve Cook about changing the three words to MAYBE renewed. He refused. That one teeny word, SHALL, Halleck said, made us kind of trapped. LEGALLY.
1: NO, GOD, NO, GOD,
6: PLEASE, NO, NO, NO.
7: it would be up to Mr. Cook on when to end his contract and only him how is this even possible have you ever heard of a contract where the employee single-handedly decides now it would sure be wonderful to tell my boss now you're gonna pay me $200,000 a year and I get to decide when this all ends ever And when I finally do decide to retire, if I ever do, I get a $100,000 pension a year until I die. What kind of world is this?
0: This is Our American Stories, and great job, Alex. And when we come back, you're going to hear the tail end of this story. By the way, I am a lawyer, and contracts are generally almost always written for a specific period of time or give parties ways to terminate an agreement. And by the way, some states, Illinois and California, for example, the courts have ruled that perpetual contracts are simply unenforceable. When we come back, Steve Cook, the final chapter, and then we'll talk... Well, we'll talk to the man who we've been talking to throughout this interview, Jarrett Scorup, after these messages. Habib and this is Our American Stories and we're back with the final portion of Alex's investigation of Steve Cook, the head of the Michigan's largest teachers union, the Michigan Education Association, who hasn't done work as an assistant teacher for the Lansing Public School District since 1991, but has technically remained as an employee there, allowing him to wildly spike his pension benefit from what it should be around $10,000 a year to over $100,000 a year until he dies. And Alex has been speaking with, or at least has tried to speak with, the folks who have responsibility for Steve Cook's immoral compensation scheme, such as Steve Cook himself, the superintendent, and the school board members. The folks who could have done something about it, who could have ended it, but haven't. And Alex had one more person that he wanted to speak with. Let's take a listen.
7: The last person I thought I'd speak to is that former superintendent we've mentioned. Richard Halleck, who was there in 1993 and signed the original contract to loan Steve Cook to the Michigan Education Association.
6: I really don't blame him for trying to protect himself and his family, you know, with a, a way to support his, you know, livelihood. And it was our mistake, and he's taking advantage of it.
7: Do you think leaders, though, in any way have a higher responsibility than just you know following the law you know what's what's right morally and I I understand the desire to you know support
6: any of of these jobs are politically hazardous (laughs)
7: let me tell you any job is politically hazardous you can be
6: on top of the mountain one day and the next day you're got a problem And superintendents are very aware of that, obviously. Our profession's very hazardous, you know, for stability with politics, with boards. And so, looking at it from that perspective, I still don't fault him for that. I would doubt if he would ever come back now. He's been so successful, you know, at what he's doing.
7: Successful as in losing 20% of your members in 2015? 20%? In a single year?
6: Why would he want to come back to Lansing as a para pro when he makes more money than most superintendents make? Wouldn't make sense.
7: Okay. How, how about from you know a, a taxpayers' perspective? You know he's working for a private um, organization. You know, say he was similarly working for you know Goldman Sachs, and for for the head of Goldman Sachs to benefit. From the public system, and I, I understand but the MEA's is paying he's, paying he's, his he's, pension. But when
6: when, not, the, when he, not, the it's not costing the Lansing schools anything. But it it, it, it didn't then, and it doesn't now.
7: It doesn't in, in the sense, though, that the pension funds are underfunded, uh, so taxpayers are having to fund well, that. You
6: can put a you can put a negative twist
7: to anything. <laughs> you also can put a positive twist to anything, as Mister Halleck was trying to do with Steve Cook's arrangement. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez.
0: And great job on that, Alex. And boy, there's so much more we could talk about, but our lawyers, well, they wouldn't let us. And I'll just leave it at that. But my goodness, what a story. And by the way, what's happening around this country, there are stories like Steve Cook's elsewhere. Maybe not this lifetime contract, but this public pension problem. Oh my goodness, this is just one little story that digs underneath the bigger, deeper problem. And now it's time to bring on Jarrett Skorup. And Jarrett works as a policy analyst at the Mackinac Center, Michigan's premier free market think tank. And Jarrett, what do you think about what you heard? And, and contextualize it for our audience, because this is one story, but as you well know, it's a part of a larger narrative about public pension funds and unions.
3: Yeah, this is a, a super important issue, and uh, one the the ancillary talk about pensions and unions and release time and all those things, I think those make the news. And the key with this one is it's been going on for decades and no one ever heard about it. It was it was pretty clearly, it was a secret arrangement. It was unknown by the general public. It was unknown by legislators. And yet, this is being funded by taxpayers. It's, it goes to the state pension fund that's underfunded by billions of dollars. And everyone's picking up the tab. Uh, Because of this type of arrangement, which, by the way, isn't unique just to uh, Mr. Cook, but each of the last of the most recent uh, MEA presidents, as well as a whole variety of their current employees, everybody has this type of arrangement going on.
0: And let me tell you, uh, the, the word shall in a contract, look, I'm a lawyer. And I think you fight this, you win it in most courts over time. There's an unconscionability clause in the UCC, and that's the Uniform Commercial Code, which governs contracts in most of the country. I mean, you would just litigate this, you would think. You're actually trying to do something in the legislative uh, area. Talk about what you're trying to do at Mackinac to stop this from happening again in the state of Michigan. And maybe folks listening around the country can ask their state legislators to do the same
3: yeah we so, after we broke this story, we had a state a state senator who is very interested in this issue on the pension swaking side and union release side, and just the general way of how taxpayers pay for union employees who aren 't working for them they're they 're out working for a private union often on political issues um, so a senator named Marty Nullenberg, um who's still in the Senate now, he had sponsored a couple of bills that would uh, get rid of these arrangements. And so that worked its way through the process um, over about a year and a half as we were investigating this and reporting on it. And it got through our Senate and it got all the way through to a final vote in our state house. And they couldn't quite uh, get the vote done in the lame duck at the end of last year. And so we fully expect that'll be another issue. That issue will come right back up this year. Um, It was disappointing that you know, a legislature here in Michigan, which is totally controlled by Republicans, couldn't muster up the votes to end something like this. Um, but we expect that it'll be back.
0: And how systemic do you think this Steve Cook story is?
3: Uh, huge in Michigan and and across the nation. So re- union release time and this type of pension spiking arrangements, which are done with the knowledge of. Uh, union leadership using uh, either school board members or other local board members that they know. It happens all across the nation. It happens at the federal level. Um, So it's a really big deal. Um, Here in Michigan, what we started investigating was how how many employees is this happening with? And what you find is that these types of arrangements are happening for uh, at least the past three MEA presidents going back 30 years, um, as well as all of their current executive leadership, so all the leaders in the union are technically employed by, this, uh, by local school districts, even though the reality is they aren't doing any work for them. And many of the other executives in the union, their uniserve directors, they're all, they're all getting a lot of this type of release time and just arrangements where the union is running their, their salary through a local school district simply in order to benefit themselves with a higher pension picked up by state taxpayers.
0: And in the end, the the total amount. I mean, I'm adding it up in my head. If it's 1991, and that's a lot of money. That's a lot of teachers' salaries. That's a lot of well, lunches for kids. Uh, that's all kinds of things. Uh, has this been really? I mean, did the does the public really know this in the state of Michigan? If I say the word Steve Cook now, do people know?
3: Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, we've certainly done our best to. Publicize a story and, and written articles on it, but the the union has tried to make it seem that this is a totally normal thing that it's that that it has a very minimal cost to taxpayers that it doesn't really matter um, and so you know, like all things, you know you do your best to get your message out for people when people do hear about it e- union members on the ground, they're totally outraged um, they don't get that type of special arrangement, and they're not real happy that uh, the union bosses are able to.
0: No, indeed. And it's happening in Illinois, too, isn't it?
3: It's happening in Illinois, it's happening in Arizona, it's happening in California, New York. Uh, Most states have it. Uh, A lot of the bigger states, particularly the ones uh, where union power is pretty strong, those are the ones where it's happening the most.
0: Yeah, and there's just no recourse. There's no recourse. It sounds like it. Look, Alex spent a month on this piece. He couldn't get anybody to talk except the retired superintendent who sounded just like, well, you know, what can I do? Mistakes were made. And that's it. I mean, he basically said mistakes were made, my bad. Oh, the taxpayers, you pick up the tab. That's crazy.
3: Yeah. the The key, the underlying of all this is really just the role of public sector unions in the government. So, in the private sector, if you know, when Ford is unionized, you have a you have a it's a private company. The union doesn't want to drive the company out of business, so they have a, a reason to negotiate, and, and there's some pushback back and forth. In the public sector, very often. The unions control the local school boards. They control the uh, any of the local officials that oversee their contracts. And so you get a lot of working together. Um, and, of course, then the taxpayers who aren't at the table, they don't have their seat there. They're the ones that are paying for these types of arrangements. So that's really the largest issue out of all of this from my standpoint. Yeah,
0: I mean, the union can only go so far because if Ford goes bankrupt, there goes the union pension. And that's not the case with the state or with the city or with the county. And this is the real problem. They kick the debt can down the road to future generations. And I try and tell every 20-year-old I meet, hey, did you know you have a debt load? And they go, yeah, my student loans. I go, oh, that's (laughs) just the beginning. You have no idea. Well, thanks so much for all that you do, Jarrett. And that's Jarrett Skorup. And he works over at the Mackinac Center. And we love talking to our state think tanks. And they are one of the best, if not the best. This is Lee Habib. And this is Our American Stories, and great work to you, Alex. And periodically, again, we like to do these public policy stories where they affect you, the taxpayer, where the policy hits the pavement. Again, this is Our American Stories, and thanks to the Mackinac Center, and thanks again to Alex.